Yeah. Yo. 50 years of hip hop. 50 years of hip hop from listener power. KX Power. With the entire world at my command, the Empire of Doom shall reign on Earth forever. Welcome to 50 Years of Hip Hop. Our host, Larry Mazel Jr., is out this week. His absence has led to a hostile takeover by two of rap's most notorious villains, MF Doom and Madlib, collectively known as Mad Villain. They've decreed that this week we are paying homage to their 2004 classic Mad Villainy. We turn now to our correspondent, Dusty Henry, for more on these two underground legends and how two different coasts came together in the name of depravity. Comic books are our modern-day mythology. Superheroes inspire us with heroic feats the same way Hercules or Achilles inspired the ancient Greeks. Similarly, hip-hop is packed with champions boasting big personalities and supernatural abilities on the mic and behind the boards. But what's a hero without a villain? Who is Hercules without Eurystheus? Or Batman without the Joker? This is something Daniel Dumoulin understood well before he even donned his metal mask and began calling himself MF Doom. And like every villain, he too has an origin story. Dumoulin was born in London in 1971, and even though he grew up in New York, he never gained American citizenship. His musical superpowers emerged early when he began DJing in the third grade. His friends and family nicknamed him Doom, a double entendre. For one, it was a play on his last name, Dumoulin, but he was also a devout comic book reader, so it's a nod to the Marvel villain, Doctor Doom. By the time he was 17, Doom took up yet another name, Zevlov X. This was his alias in the hip-hop trio KMD, which included his brother Subrock and Onyx, the birthstone kid. The group gained notoriety for tackling big topics like racism and social injustice with a satirical tone. In their 1991 debut album, Mr. Hood, they'd often incorporate clips from cartoons and television shows, something Doom would lean heavily into later in his career. Once upon a time, there was a little boy who lived in the deep, dark jungles of Africa. His name was Little Sambo. As the group continued to evolve, their music got more serious. They began recording their follow-up record in 1993, titled Black Bastards. Creating and releasing the album was a grueling process. Onyx quit the group during the recording, so Doom had to remove some of his verses. Then, tragedy struck the duo when its other collaborator, DJ Subrock, was struck and killed by a car. While in grief, Doom pushed forward and finished the album in the months following his brother's death. Not long after the album was announced, their label Elektra canceled the album due to its controversial title and album cover which featured a Jim Crow-era illustration of a black man being lynched. The album was heavily bootlegged, but wouldn't get an official release for another seven years in 2000. After that, Doom disappeared. He claims to have spent his time wandering the streets of Manhattan and spending some time away in Atlanta. In an official press bio that came out after the fact, 
He says he took the time to recover from his wounds and swore his revenge against, quote, the industry that deformed him. An origin close to that of the Fantastic Four's arch nemesis and Doom's namesake, Dr. Doom. As I stood outside your door, I heard quite a bit of your story. If you wish, I'll add mine to clear up the mystery of Doom's transition. In 1997, his true villain form emerged. Adopting the name MF Doom, he started freestyling at open mic nights in New York, concealing his face with tights before he'd later don his famous metal mask. Mic check. But not just that, his flow had changed. He rapped more slowly than he did in KMD, but more viciously too. His rhymes were hip-hop tongue twisters reflecting his new villainous personality. The rest of the world would finally hear the wrath of this new Doom when he dropped his first solo album in 1999, Operation Doomsday. Doom self-produced and recorded Operation Doomsday over three weeks. The record signaled a new era, not just for Doom, but also in underground rap. Rather than vying for mainstream attention with catchy hooks and club-ready production, Doom let his own idiosyncrasies define the record. He'd cut in clips from the Fantastic Four and Scooby-Doo cartoons, sometimes as skits amid the beats. Look at that equipment. I wonder what Doom's working on. But his devilish tendencies couldn't be contained to one alter ego. He began to adopt even more personas. In just a few years, he released a steady flow of music under names like Victor Vaughn and the kaiju name-checking King Ghidorah. King Ghidorah, take me to your leader. Quick to claim that he not no snake like me neither. The era of villains was just beginning. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, another superpower was emerging. Over in Oxnard, California. Otis Jackson Jr. found himself surrounded by music pretty much from the moment of his birth in 1973. His parents, Otis Jackson Sr. and Doris Jackson, were both musicians, along with his uncle, jazz trumpeter John Fadis. He spent his childhood going to the studio with his dad, constantly exposed to new music and instruments. At 11 years old, he scoured his dad's record collection and made his first beat from a copy of the JB's Doing It to Death. Hit it! At that point, there was no turning back. Beat making would become Otis's life. Throughout the 90s, Otis surrounded himself with like-minded hip-hop heads. He formed a loose collective called CDP and still collaborates with some of those artists today. Artists like M.E.D., Declaim, Can Kick, and his younger brother, Michael Woodrow Jackson, who raps and produces under the name Oh No. Brain on fire, like I'm standing on top of the train and holding the wire. The superhuman skills that I've acquired, marvel the marvelous. Around this time, Otis started going by the name Madlib, an acronym for Mind Altering Demented Lessons in Beats, and formed his own group called Loop Pack, featuring producer DJ Realms and rapper Wild Child. His father supported the group by putting out their first EP, Psych Move. The record caught the ears of Peter Butterwolf, an LA-based producer and founder of Stone's Throw Records. He signed the group and put out their debut record, 
Sound Pieces to Antidote in 1999. So far, this is Loot Pack's only official release. While Loot Pack never officially broke up, all the members steadily moved into solo careers. Madlib began a prolific era of production that, as of the time of this podcast, is still going. Much like his future counterpart Doom, Madlib began adopting new personas. In 2000, he took the alias Quasimodo and released his first record, The Unseen. Hey yo, we head to a party to go see what's happening. Smoking the law in the car, turn on some rapping. Start the freestyle, we be up on our way. Finish up the blunt. Somebody passed that spray. This release established Madlib as both a producer and a rapper. Persona Quasimodo is represented as a yellow cartoon creature, always featured with a cigarette, or blunt, hanging from his mouth. Quasimodo even has a distinct voice. Madlib would pitch up his vocals to distinguish between his Quas voice and his own. Like this. Quasimodo voice? Madlib voice. Quasimodo voice? Madlib voice. Something like that. In 2001, he adopted another alter ego, positioning himself as an entire jazz band with the name Yesterday's New Quintet. By this time, Madlib was gaining traction. When the LA Times asked which artist he wanted to collaborate with, he mentioned two names, Jay Dilla and Doom. He first began working with Dilla, the Detroit producer who redefined beatmaking for a generation. The two were kindred spirits and quickly built a deep friendship. Together, they released their only collaborative album in 2003 under the name J-Lib. The album was titled Champion Sound. They stayed close friends until Dilla's untimely death in 2006. He died from cardiac arrest due to complications from lupus. Shortly after the release of Champion Sound, Madlib would also be contacted by historic jazz label Blue Note to remix their catalog for his album Shades of Blue. At the beginning of Stepping Into Tomorrow, we hear a brief introduction from Doom. Party people, Doom. It'll let you know that I have no prior knowledge to any invasion or any invasion being planned or executed. And I have no ties to Madly. This was one of our first official indications that this dream collaboration was imminent. Much like Nick Fury in The Avengers, Stone's Throw manager Ethan Egan Alipat orchestrated this inevitable meeting of superpowers. Doom was living between Long Island, New York, and the Kennesaw neighborhood of Atlanta. Fondalum Records had folded after putting out Operation Doomsday, so Doom was scheming once again. Egon caught wind of Doom's whereabouts in Atlanta and had a friend in the area share some Madlib instrumentals with him. Within a matter of weeks, Doom asked Stone's Throw for $1,500 and a plane ticket to LA. Doom and Madlib instantly connected, signed a contract on a paper plate, and began plotting their world domination. As luck would have it, one of America's two most powerful villains of the next decade is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. Like true villains, they hold up in Madlib's secret lair. 
a studio built in an old bomb shelter. They went through hundreds of beats, recording nonstop. Well, except for the occasional break to smoke weed, take mushrooms, and eat takeout. In the midst of production, Madlib took a trip to Brazil to give a lecture at Red Bull Music Academy and to do some crate digging, some of which would provide samples on the album Mad Villainy. Madlib kept working on the album even while he was in Brazil, but disaster struck abroad. Someone had stolen a copy of the demos and leaked them on the internet a whole 14 months before it was supposed to be released. As a sign of its future success, the leak caused a substantial buzz around the project. But still, Doom and Madlib were so frustrated that they stepped away from the project. In this hiatus, Madlib finished up the JLib project, while Doom continued work on his albums under the monikers King Ghidorah and Victor Vaughn. Eventually, the duo saw the proverbial bat signal. They knew they had to get back together and see it through. Doom insisted on re-recording all of his vocals, changing up his voice and flow. They finally pushed the album across the finish line. On the cover, a black and white photo of Doom wearing his signature mask. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone after you whose last is Doom, he's the worst known. Their dastardly plan came to fruition. Mad Villainy was officially released in March of 2004. The praise was almost instant. There hadn't been a rap album quite like it. At a time when rap was becoming more glamorous and more commercialized, Mad Villainy felt like an antithesis to the world around it. In the time before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it felt like a comic book came to life. And not just because of Doom's mask. Both artists lean into the roles of cosmic outlaws. The album is full of left turns right out of the gate. The chaotic opening montage of cartoon clips builds tension, leading up to the big villain reveal. Villains who were the personification of carnage. Immediately after that, the album jumps into... an accordion? And it ruled. Doom raps like it's nothing, and Madlib's production feels tastefully restrained, with scant drums thudding against the accordion loop. Living off borrowed time, the clock tick faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and mutley with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. They even had their own multiverse moment, way before Marvel or DC could get one in theaters. On the track Bistro, Doom proceeds over a shady diner, filled with the duo's alter egos. We also have King Ghidra on the mix. Yesterday's new quintet is here. Victor Vaughn, Quasimodo. Each artist gets a chance to hulk out and flex their muscles. I mean, just listen to Mad Lib's instrumental track, Sick Fit. And of course, we can't talk about this album without mentioning what would become more or less Doom's official theme song, All Caps. It's the reason why you spell his name in all caps. His rhymes and rhythms are so complex that it's almost jarring to hear it at first. Is he offbeat? What is he doing? 
it almost sounds like he's talking through the song. Once you run it back and listen carefully, though, you notice that each line is packed with internal rhyme schemes so complex they blow your English teacher's brain to smithereens. And it's not his fault you kick slow. Should've let your trick hold, chick hold your sick glow. Plus nobody couldn't do nothing once he let the brick go. And you know I know that's a bunch of snow. The beat is so butter. Peep the slow cutter as he uttered the calm flow. Don't talk about my mom, Joe. As he says, sometimes he raps fast, sometimes he raps slow. For Doom, it's not about speed, but complexity. Like an elaborate plan concocted by Dr. Doom himself, you don't know what the mastermind is up to until it's too late. And to top it off, all caps ends with one of the best uses of onomatopoeia. Investigation is still ongoing in this pesky nation. He got the best con flowing. The pot doubles. Now they really got troubles. Madman never go like snot bubbles. The song may be just barely over two minutes long, but those two minutes have fascinated rap fans for almost two decades. The same can be said for many songs on Mad Villainy. Almost immediately after its release, fans were clamoring for more. But Doom and Mad Lib were already on to the next. The same year he dropped Mad Villainy, Doom released four volumes of his instrumental Special Herbs series, another Victor Vaughn record, and another highly acclaimed and iconic solo album titled Mmm Food. Meanwhile, Madlib also dropped two more albums as yesterday's new quintet. He also dropped another new moniker, DJ Rells, and put out an electronic album called Theme for a Broken Soul. And of course, that's not counting all the other music they were recording that would come later. There was a Mad Villainy 2, released in 2008, but instead of new material, it consisted of Mad Lib remixing and reworking the old album. A proper sequel was constantly teased, but never manifested. In the following decades, Doom remained as prolific and mysterious as ever. He put out albums with the likes of Danger Mouse, Bishop Nehru, Zarface, and Gennaro Jarrell. Sporadically throughout the years, he'd be accused of sending imposters to perform in his place at shows and festivals, in homage to Dr. Doom's Doombots that would do his bidding. Doom's British citizenship also plagued him in his later years. After a 2010 tour in Europe, he was refused re-entry into the United States, keeping him from his wife and kids back in the country he spent his life in. In 2012, he'd finally get his family to London, where he'd spend out the rest of his days. At the end of 2020, Doom's wife Jasmine revealed that her husband had died. For many fans, it was hard to take in. Was it even real? Or perhaps just an elaborate Doom ruse? Unfortunately, as more details emerged, the truth was undeniable. Doom passed away October 31st, 2020, from angioedema, a rare skin condition. He was only 49 years old. Meanwhile, Madlib has continued on. In recent years, he's received huge acclaim for another collaborative project, releasing two albums with gangster rapper Freddie Gibbs. In 2021, he released his first proper solo album under his own name, titled Sound Ancestors. (laughs) 
Madlib still says a Mad Villain sequel may happen, since it was recorded with Doom prior to his death. Even if it never appears, Mad Villainy still stands as a testament to two underground artists at the height of their powers. They use their superpowers to remind us just how intoxicating villainy can be. Thanks to Roddy Nickpour for audio production on this piece. I'm Dusty Henry, and we'll see you next week on 50 Years of Hip Hop from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. And now we return to our regularly scheduled program.